0: The state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre era or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway and up in the hills and getting down on the holler. So raise a glass of sipping whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made up by and in
1: Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. This is Michael T. Davis, Casey Wood, Seth West. What up? Yep. This is Journeyman, Tennessee chapter. Welcome back to this newest session, this great new episode. It's been a week since we've last talked. We have been in a clip. Um, Talk a little bit real quick before we get into the episode about how everyone's week was. Um, I really haven't had too much cool... Things going on, except for the fact that I have been even further knee-deep into the world of Johnny Ace. Uh, It's kind of really the only thing I've been thinking about and listening to. Except I delved shortly into the wider catalog of one Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton uh, that I had not listened to in quite some time. Man, that shit is so good. They may not all be hound dogs, right? That is lightning (laughs) in the bottle, undoubtedly. But that woman could sing. She she has got it going on. Uh, that's what I've been doing. Seth, did you do anything cool in the past week? I'm not sure.
2: I have much to report of interest to our listeners or anyone, <laughs> frankly.
1: Uh, heads down. Been working. That's about it. Okay, that's cool. Casey, by the way, has got some cool stuff going on, and only two things of which we'll talk about because he's the the coolest of the dorkiest of us. Just, uh, just the
0: dorkiest. <laughs>
1: And I learned this just from Facebook because we hadn't talked about this, but you're playing with Before Kicks Brooks next week? This Saturday. This Saturday. Opening up from okay, <coughs> at his vineyard. Yeah, Arrington Vineyard, just yep. south of Nashville for those who haven't been. It's a wonderful place to go. Take the family, take a date, propose to a girl. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. Uh, the wine is actually pretty good wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a nice little vineyard uh, that Kicks Brooks of Brooks and Dunn fame. Uh, owns and operates and has for quite some time. A decade yep. plus. And, uh, so Casey's band uh, plays in the woodshed on the far side of the winery. Uh, and they play there quite often on Saturdays and Sundays called Nine Volt Romeo, which we'll address at a later point in time. But you were opening up for Kicks Brooks. Yeah, this Saturday is his... Um they do, once a year they do the
0: harvest party, oh. which is when they harvest the grapes, and he, sure. so he sets up a big-ass stage on the hill, and he does a free concert for whoever wants to show up, and any money they make on the wine goes to the St. Jude's. That's really rad. Yep. I love St. Jude's. He man. makes, just gives it all away, and um, there's thousands of people show up for this, because it's a Free Kicks Brooks concert, and we play on the, you know, the opening act for about four hours. We entertain people while they hang out and spend money and get primed for a concert.
1: You do a four-hour set before Kicks yeah, Brooks? four-hour set. On the same stage or you do it mm. in the band shed? Same stage.
0: In previous years, they used to have us up at the top of the hill in the um, in the jazz barn. But last year and this year, they're having us down on the uh,
1: main stage. So is the main stage like at the bottom of yeah, the it's hill? Yes, the bottom of the hill.
0: So the, the, the main chalet of the, the store is up the top. Yeah. And then there's this huge hill with... Fields for people to picnic and stuff, and at the bottom of the hill is where all the grapevines are, and it's just it's really be- beautiful. It's real scenic. Have you been out there?
2: I have not. It's really it's worth going right. to. Yeah. It's a take a Yep.
0: yep. It's yeah, it's romantic. Yeah. You'll see. And even if you don't go with a the girl, there's usually about ten thousand bachelorettes out there. There is. <laughs> there's a lot
1: of girls. <laughs> there's out there. lot there's of, a lot, lot of, of like Franklin hot moms too. Yeah. Maybe a reason not to go. Yeah. Well, there's that i took my baby girl there so it was cool my like actual child yeah so it's a, it's just a fun family place and yeah. so i even better i didn't realize it was for a cause i mean saint jude mm-hmm. for those who don't know um is a charity hospital for cancer children yeah. children with cancer uh based out of memphis with great yeah. tennessee cause and so that's that's even I, it cooler. might
0: change each year i don't know like i think one year he did it for vanderbilt's children's hospital I, you know mm. I, I might be out of turn of speaking and. It specifically as to what this year's one is but he's done he likes to help the children's hospitals so okay I'm
1: sure it's probably saint jude i literally know nothing about kicks and brooks somebody took me to go see their show one time like a long time ago and i had nothing else to do that night and i like spent most oh my god so uh, this is this one in, i've got a handful instances like but i went because i was so bored like i didn't know anything about him and like I don't even know who took me, my roommate or something. They have free tickets because they were in the industry. And I was so bored. and someone's just like walking around. It was outside that old amphitheater, Starwood. Mm-hmm. That it was called, right? Yep. And I walk in the bathroom. You know, it's a real long bathroom, right? And it's mm-hmm. just me and this other guy like 10, 7 urinals away. This dude is fucking jerking off. <laughs> oh, man. And I don't know if he was doing it when I walked in or just decided <laughs> once I walked in. Once he saw you. I'm so, like... I,
0: he really either really liked the music, or there was some sort of ad above that urinal that just caught his attention.
2: I <laughs> wish the, I had female football.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I hadn't thought about that memory. So thank you for bringing that trauma. You're the that. one that.
0: I'm sorry, dude, but that's all in you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> is Kicks Cake, a cool dude? Ah, uh, yeah, he's a really cool dude. I've I've gotten to spend
0: much time around him. He comes out at the winery, and hangs out. He's great. He walks around in sweatpants, and no one knows who he is. <laughs> I saw a woman in the in the wine store one day shove him. Cause he was t- standing there talking to someone and apparently he was blocking a bottle of wine on the shelf behind him that this woman had wanted. And she, and I, and I, he knows like, he kind of knows who I am because he comes out and he sees us playing and stuff. And sure. So he'll, he'll wave and stuff. So I, I was standing there and he's kind of looked at me and he's like, oh yeah, that's funny. She pushed me, whatever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Spend your money in my store. <laughs> that's funny. So, um, I don't know. You play most Saturdays and Sundays, and this is and not Fridays. And Fridays, yeah, this is not the same band that got kicked out of BB uh, <laughs> Kings, by the way. So, no. <laughs> uh, and they're really fun when you're out there. Casey's playing the drums; it's good. Um, so, besides that, Seth, Casey, and I were eating uh, dinner before you came because I wanted to make sure it was full and I didn't get too drunk.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't uh, call it dinner,
1: but <laughs> it was it was a keto roll up. <laughs> no, and I see a set list. Uh, and it's got, like, 15 songs on it. It's broken down, and it's got these numbers. And, and I'm looking at this set list, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And it's all Jimmy Buffett songs. So that's part of your four-hour set? No, no, <laughs> no, it gets even better. Yeah, I'm like, no. Casey, what's going on with these <laughs> all these goddamn Jimmy Buffett songs? He's like, oh, I'm going to Toronto next week to play with the Coral Reefers at a <laughs> baseball game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. that's Casey's week next that's week. That's my week. Yeah,
0: they're doing the... the uh, Margaritaville Day at at the Toronto Stadium, whatever the name of their stadium is, the Toronto Blue Jays, should be fun. Jimmy's not going. It's just the Coral Reefers.
1: Are you playing with the Coral Reefers? Uh
0: I'm playing drums. The drummer's not going, so I'm filling in for the drummer.
1: Oh, okay. So does that make you an official Coral Reefer then?
0: (laughs) I guess, for one day.
1: (laughs) Have you ever even smoked marijuana? Uh,
0: This is going to be edited? Actually, no, I've not.
1: Okay, for not, future reference, for Casey future, is actually one of the coolest guys that I know. He's also one of the dorkiest guys yeah. that I know. So he's probably the only person in the entire music industry that has never smoked <sighs> drugs.
0: Look, you can't pay for all this shit if you have a drug <laughs> habit. And I have found that a contact buzz will suffice. Yeah, now, I did not, don't have
1: anything to compare it to, <laughs> but it does just fine. So this is uh, Jimmy Buffett minus, minus Jimmy Buffett, the Coral Reefers, and one Coral Abstainer <laughs> playing for the Toronto Blue Jays coral. In, in, between, uh, in, be, in between innings. I'll, I'll smoke a cigar. I don't know if you can smoke in that stadium. Yeah, probably not. It's uh, that, so ridiculous. And by the way, I didn't know this until like three days ago. You, you know that he opened up a Margaritaville Hotel in Sobro. Uh, Already? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you seen this? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a full-on carnival down there now. It is a goddamn carnival. Let me tell you this for our greater listeners. Please come to Nashville and uh, give us your tax tourist revenue. We love that. Just stay downtown. (laughs) Don't come to my neighborhood. (laughs) Don't come to my restaurants. Don't come to my bars. I go to Tomato Fest next week, two weeks from now, and if I see any more goddamn bachelorette parties in my own goddamn neighborhood... I'll flip out. I now, was, wait a
0: minute. You've got some Airbnbs, so I'm sure you want some of those rented.
1: I do. <laughs> Unrelated. <laughs> Unrelated. <laughs> Unrelated. Okay, so let's get back to the story at hand uh, with our dear friend, Johnny Ace. Um, this gets incredibly interesting uh, very shortly, and... And for those of us, I'm not necessarily going to call it a trigger warning, but there's going to be some heavy pieces in this next episode. So um, prepare yourself for it. Uh, There was two pieces of foreshadowing right there. Sure. Just (laughs) wait till I get through this first page of my outline. (laughs) So it's mid to late 1954 at this point of our story. Um, Johnny's out on the road. uh, And while in Florida in a pawn shop, uh, it was that was once owned by a musician in a band called Boss Lewis. This guy, how typical is this? Like a blues musician named Boss Lewis who runs a pawn shop. <laughs> it's like the uh, Muddy Waters scene in uh, Blues Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Wasn't, he the, wasn't it Muddy Waters that was uh, or it was Bo Diddley that was the pawn shop and guy? Don't you no, know? it was Ray Charles. Was it Ray Charles? It was Ray Charles. Oh, am I thinking about Dan Aykroyd in the uh, Trading Places? Wasn't there somebody in there? Uh, maybe, yeah. Anyway, so it's that it. type, right? <clears throat> so Johnny Ace is on the road in Florida, and uh, he's living the life he lives, and he goes out and he buys uh, from this pawn shop a 22 pistol. No reason why. I uh, just bought it, right? He's has flush full of money at this time. Uh, it was a Harrington and richardson Model 6 double-action seven-shot revolver made out of Worcester, Mass. cost him $50. It was a nickel finish with a a two-and-a-half-inch barrel and a plastic grip. Maybe he felt like he needed protection. Maybe he just was an enthusiast that was interested in guns at this point. This type of gun, both in terms of its size, its type, and uh, its manufacturing was a pretty low-cost, low-quality type of pistol. It was not something that was known, and anybody who knows anything about guns can appreciate, or just machinery in general, that um, machining is incredibly important, especially at that level of velocity or that important of of a weapon or a machine, right? Um, These type of guns, uh, because of their mass production, low quality, uh, were often called junk guns, or people may know this uh, term. uh, Colloquially, it was known as a Saturday night special. I often wondered what that meant myself, because I'm not a huge gun guy, right? I grew up around them, but I didn't really know what that meant. But it's essentially just a shit cheap small pistol. Yes, something you can conceal easily. Right, true, right? And so um, Johnny had this plastic grip on it. Of course, he's kind of a high-class guy. He wanted to get it replaced later with a pearl finish, but he just couldn't ever do it. Probably because at this point of his life, he couldn't let go of the gun. And this becomes interesting throughout this episode. This type of gun, known as a junk gun or as a Saturday Night Special, also had a incredibly... Uh, ominous name of suicide gun so i mean i suppose because people they were cheap and they would get the job done right so johnny himself and this is not a big surprise to our listeners and to us as we discover him through this story he wasn't a particularly responsible gun owner uh wasn't big on firearm safety uh he liked his guns which is perfectly fine you know there are people that like them there are people that are afraid of them you can fall wherever you want but they exist but he's one of those ones that um really sort of got off on owning a gun and i think there's some level when i think about it after the fact now of knowing this next part is um he didn't have a lot right you know cash was pretty transient he didn't own that Oldsmobile that he had. He had his clothes and didn't even have his own piano. Like, you know, uh, so he had some spending cash, didn't have a home. He didn't really have a lot to his name and a small uh, Saturday night special that he could conceal and carry with him was probably one of the few tangible real assets that he can carry from city to city to place to place, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I carry a knife. You know, and I know the story behind that knife, where it came from, and where I bought it, and you know. And um, was he hanging
0: around a lot of riffraff? Did he feel like he needed it for protection playing some of these clubs? I
1: think the question is also the answer. Yeah, oh. in that regard, right? I mean, it's the mid 1950s in the deep South, in large cities, in all-black neighborhoods, and he's playing in an all-cash environment. Mm-hmm reasonably you would want some level of protection i think that's a valid point yeah. I, mm-hmm. like thinking it out loud you know um so yeah uh, you know it's not uh, unwarranted that he would carry a gun uh but, you know, Johnny Board, who traveled with him the whole time as one of his band leaders, uh, said that Johnny Ace was like a kid with a toy with this gun, right? He was fascinated with it, carried it everywhere. He would do stupid shit, like shooting it off the air. They'd stop on the side of the road, take a piss, and he's just firing off into the fields, right? Uh, he was that type of person that really loved horseplay just in general. He was kind of like a rough and tumble sort of dude. And he was loved being an ass. Um, so none of this was like particularly malicious. It was just... Just, for lack of a better term, boys will be boys. Careless. Just Mm -hmm. careless, right? Uh, He'd go 90 miles an hour in that Oldsmobile that he was borrowing, shooting at road signs, you know, at the numbers. He'd he'd fire it out of hotel windows, waking guests up in the middle of the night, getting complaints, getting kicked out of hotels, right? Doesn't bode well, (laughs) right? I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much to... Have a bad day when you're playing with the gun. So you want to talk about foreshadowing. I think you said the term foreshadowing a little too early. I mean, this to me is says a lot, right? I mean Seth. Yeah. I don't know the source. I feel like it was Hitchcock or
2: somebody, but it's uh anytime a gun enters the scene, that <laughs> gun will be used.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, I, I I remember that little piece. That's perfect. Uh you know, as a gun owner, like gun ownership is it's a right, but it's also a huge responsibility. And Mm -hmm. considering the week that we just had in America and the gun violence we've seen, uh, and I don't want to get into politics ever on this show, but like the point is, is that gun ownership, just like your right to vote or in many of our proactive rights, uh, require a huge amount of responsibility, right? You can say that, yeah, you should be able to do whatever you want with your vote or your gun or whatever other rights are given to us by God or by constitution. But the fact of the matter is, is that anybody who owns a gun has a right to responsibility. Mm -hmm. Johnny Ace did not exercise that responsibility clearly. Uh, So according to Johnny Otis, who was obviously in the mix at the time, Ace's roadie and point man, I guess he had like this body man that was with him all the time and acting as maybe as a tech or et cetera, right? According to Johnny Otis, Ace's roadie and point man in the band often complained that Ace was taking the gun, spinning the barrel and pointing it at the roadie, scaring the shit out of him. So he goes to Otis and then just says, hey man, this, this is not cool. Like the boss is being an asshole here, Right. There were signs at this time maybe that Johnny Ace was quite depressed, right? He was drinking heavily. He added 40 pounds to his previously pretty trim and athletic frame. He changed away his look. He grew a a mustache and a process hairdo, you know, one of the things that they did back in the day. Um, B.B. King at the time said that he thought maybe the pressures of being on the road were getting to him, right? Which I think is like a pretty legitimate... Point, dude um, gained forty pounds in twelve months. That's like three and a half pounds uh, a month. Mm-hmm. So, three quarters of a pound a week. Thirty-five hundred calories per pound. <laughs> it's consuming an extra three thousand calories. <laughs> I guess per day it's not that much, right? I guess it's five, six hundred calories. I'm I'm not that good at math. Well, it's just sixteen it's sixteen
0: hundred <laughs> sticks of butter.
1: That's all I that's did. all you that's how you
0: look at it. That's when
1: you when you want to lose weight, you just, you know, <laughs> multiply it by four and that's how many <laughs> sticks of butter it is. Forty pounds is not an insignificant amount of weight. No, that's a lot. That is a lot. And that's especially lot. in that quick a time, right? And so you could appreciate the lifestyle where he was, who he was with, where he was mm-hmm. like every day. Yeah, man, he's drinking all the time, eating greasy spoon food, right? Yep. Um, not sleeping, you know, yeah. chasing girls, all that stuff. So uh, back in Memphis during Thanksgiving in 1954, uh, a rumor at this time had actually uh, reached the Mitchell Hotel. And quick reminder, the Mitchell Hotel was the Beale Street uh, flop house slash all black owned and black um, uh, uh, visited hotel where uh, it was sort of the home of all of the musicians. Uh, it's where they stayed and where Johnny actually essentially slept whenever he was in Memphis. So back at the Mitchell, sort of the home spot for the Beale Streeter crew, uh, there was a rumor that Johnny had been killed in a car accident. Clearly not true. The rumors of my demise have mm-hmm. clearly wrong or whatever the Mark Twain code is. So now it's December. Most of the crew from the road, they're back in Houston at Don Roby's Peacock Records office. They're picking up contracts, just doing work. And a lot of the people there for whatever reason at this particular time. Enter our old friend, Gatemouth Brown. He was there. Johnny Ace was there talking, bullshitting, doing whatever. at In the record label offices in Houston, Johnny jokingly pulls out his pistol and points it Directly at Gatemouth Brown. Gatemouth says to Johnny, don't point that gun at me, point it at your fool self. Okay. Some reports say that Gatemouth actually pulled out a knife in his defense. Later, other people denied that fact. But regardless, Gatemouth Brown didn't seem to like Johnny Ace and he considered him to be an ignorant fool. If a guy named Gatemouth is calling you ignorant, (laughs) I don't know, perhaps he's got a point. (laughs) So in the run-up to Christmas, uh, Johnny actually was acting quite erratically. He was driving like a maniac, running into curves, doing stupid stuff, running stoplights. He had this fascination with a gun. It was with him everywhere, all times, right? But he also seemed to be threatened by it, right? I mean, it's a gun, so it has power. It has responsibility, like I said. And uh, it was this hot and cold. Uh, There was at least four times in this period... Where he would actually turn the gun over to friends, people in the band for safekeeping for a certain amount of time. Hmm. How and why? We're not quite sure, but he would just say, Hey, Casey, hold the gun for me for a little while.
2: Hmm.
1: Trying to show some responsibility or
2: I don't know, trying to hide it from something he's done with it? Yeah, he's trying to get someone
1: else's fingerprints on it. <laughs> <laughs> God, Casey, I didn't thought about that. that <laughs> <point>. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past this colorful crew. So it's Christmas Eve, 1954. The band had played Port Arthur, Texas after leaving Houston and doing some work. They hightailed it over to Houston with Johnny Ace driving. He's at the wheel. They show up on Alabama Street and then take a nap in Johnny Ace's current girlfriend, a woman named Olivia Gibbs, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress at the club matinee. So apparently at this time, Our friend Johnny had been seeing Olivia for well over a year and a half. Even though she knew that he had a wife and kids at home back in Memphis, she considered herself to be engaged to Johnny. In fact, since it was Christmas, she had just bought him a diamond ring for the holiday as a present. So, are we surprised? (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. That's his M.O., that is his Um,
2: M.O. She bought him a diamond ring, though.
1: That's, that's odd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no girl's ever bought me a diamond ring. <laughs> Was it fit for her finger, though?
0: Here. <laughs> Here.
2: Yeah. Save <laughs> you the trouble.
1: Where did she, as a cocktail waitress, get the money for a diamond ring? So they're on Alabama Street in Houston. It's Christmas Day. They'd just gotten there. How many girlfriends in different places thought that they were engaged to Johnny Ace throughout the country? Right? I mean, there's probably one or two or multiples in Memphis. Uh, I mean, he probably spent more time in Houston just logistically because that was the label headquarters and uh, mm-hmm. sort of operations at Duke at this point. So he probably was there than, than most places, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a couple other cocktail waitresses across the country that probably thought the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I may have a couple of cocktail waitresses across the country. <laughs> that think
0: this- Well, didn't he have one in Memphis for the show that his wife showed up for? Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. That's also an untrue story, what I just said about myself, just putting that out there. <laughs> I was trying to sound cool. Happily married. Uh, so, Johnny actually had the whole band over to his girlfriend's house, Olivia, for Christmas dinner. Hey, that's a nice thing to do. So, at dinner, he starts playing with this 22 again. Olivia says at Christmas dinner, he's playing Russian roulette, but he's not loading any ammo into the chamber. So play acting, I guess, right? So he's taking the gun, there's no ammo in it, spins it, flips it, closed, fires, click, blank, nothing. Pretty dick move, any way you do it. Mm -hmm. Some serious attention seeking there. Right, 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 right. right. My father would have murdered me if I did that, right? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, any responsible gun owner, like, would just be aghast at that type of behavior, right? And it's not just once, you know. People do dumb shit with guns periodically, but generally you you get the tar beat out of you or scared out of you. We're like, oh, no, I don't sweep the gun range, or no, I don't do whatever. Sounds like Johnny Ace is really
2: kind of asking for it, you know. I mean, he he either wants or expects something to happen with this gun. I mean, it just seems like he's interjecting it any chance he gets, pissing everybody off. Scaring Um, people. Obviously, it's going to come
1: to a head for him. This Yehu, at this party, gives two separate chicks a bullet apiece, saying, and I quote, if I fool around and kill myself, here's a souvenir. It's like a perfect fucking written play, right? Yep. To your point, when you introduce a gun, it's <laughs> gonna get used. Thank you, Hitchcock, right? The tension, the buildup, the foreshadowing, it's its almost like it's too scripted. And I think a lot of this has to do with the excellent writing of James Salem, who did this book. But the fact of the matter is the veracity of all the comments in this story are all there. But its it's fascinating to me because it's, in hindsight, very clear, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, yeah, sure. So- Hollywood, I'm calling dibs on this movie. Nobody has the rights. I don't think I'm going to write, produce, direct. I will not star in it. I just need some money and I need some, uh, a marketing plan. Dibs. No one else is doing it. <laughs> Who do you think would be a good Johnny Ace for our, our story?
2: I don't know. Maybe an up and coming unknown. Yeah, maybe. You know, or you know, Terrence Tracy Howard- Morgan.
1: Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Terrence Howard would be really cool because he already did a Memphis thing. Yeah, he's about 40 years too old. Yeah, he is. I don't know. He's a good actor. All right, that's, that's your job. You'll, you'll do casting. So Don Roby was prepping for the next Johnny Ace release. Uh, the previous record was called You've Been Gone, in parentheses, So Long, and it really didn't make any waves. Not a flop. Not a, not a hit. So back to the Christmas scene in Houston. It's Christmas Day, 1954. They're playing a show that night on Christmas Day in the evening. That show was called The Negro Christmas Dance. So after the Christmas dinner at Johnny's girlfriend Olivia's house, whole band was there. They made their way over to the city auditorium on the north side of Houston. It wasn't quite a sellout that night, but it did draw a very respectable 3,500 people. Willie Mae was to open. Johnny was to finish one set, take a break, and then come back out for another round of songs. That was the plan. The first set went off without a hitch. Johnny Ace and Big Mama Thornton finishing out before the break with Yes Baby, a duet that they had recorded, the two of them. And the Jolly Christmas crowd was in a great mood and they went wild over the show. So that was Johnny Ace singing Yes, Baby uh, with a backup vocal by Big Mama Thornton. Not really showcasing uh, Willie Mae there, but uh, it was nice to see two label mates doing something fun, right? She wasn't necessarily credited with it. Interesting, it was, uh, you know, uh, Jump Blues, and I'm a big fan of R&B, Jump Blues. I think it's one of the purest art forms that we have. It's just so solid, but that's not as great as some of the other stuff like the song is a fine song but his vocals i don't know if you noticed like it was like lower in the mix uh it was the mix wasn't as solid or as separated it's his vocal performance didn't seem to be as strong uh as the ballads right kind of didn't
2: sound like him sort of and i don't know if that's just because i'm used to hearing johnny on the ballads and the slower stuff that's one of the more up-tempo songs we've heard from him yet but, uh, yeah, it sounded different. maybe it's mm-hmm. uh maybe it was a little out of his out of his range, not vocally, but just stylistically.
1: Mm-hmm. So back to our scene. It is uh halfway through the show. um uh, and as you guys remember, these were not shows in the same way that we go. She shows where it's opener another band closer right it's more of a review so uh, big mama thornton played a couple songs johnny comes out she comes out right so they're, then they take a set break so halfway through the show intermission it's about 11 o'clock eleven fifteen. 15 ace and the whole troop was backstage doing what they do right everyone's in a christmas mood they're drinking vodka they're horsing around and of course they're playing with this gun Earlier in the day, he had complained of a pretty bad toothache uh, and he didn't think that he'd be able to finish the show uh, during the intermission and said that his tooth was hurting pretty bad. His girlfriend Olivia uh, had gone up and gotten an aspirin from Evelyn Johnson of, of Duke Records and Buffalo Booking Agency. She's out front in the ticket booth collecting uh, tickets and I would assume keeping an eye on on the cash in the show, right? As she does. Um uh, Olivia brought back this aspirin and Johnny held it to his tooth uh, to soothe the pain halfway through the set right while they're backstage. Depositions were given by three witnesses that at least five people were in the backstage dressing room at the time. Olivia, Johnny's Houston girlfriend, her buddy, uh, Mary Carter, uh, and Mary was passing around the vodka, uh, a couple other guys, and, and Johnny. The most... Complete account of the events Uh, they were given in deposition by one Willie May Thornton on 1240 a.m. December 26, 1954. And I'm going to read this verbatim to paint the whole picture without commentary. We arrived at the city auditorium at around 7.20 p.m. and the dance started about 8 o'clock. I did not sing until about 9 o'clock, when I sang five numbers. The band played several numbers before Johnny Ace came on to sing. He sang several numbers, and he and I sing the duet, Yes Baby. The band played two more numbers. Then I went to the dressing room to change clothes. But I got busy signing autographs, and I did not get to change clothes. Johnny Ace came to the dressing room, and he signed some autographs. He started to leave out the door when some people stopped to talk to him. About that time, Olivia, Johnny Ace's girlfriend, walked up and Johnny and Olivia came into the dressing room. Johnny sit on the dresser in the dressing room and Olivia sit on his lap. Shortly after, he sit down. Two more people who were in the dressing room, Mary Carter and Joe Hamilton began running around. I looked over at Johnny and notice he had a pistol in his hand. It was a pistol that he bought somewhere in Florida. It was a 22 caliber revolver. Johnny was pointing this pistol at Mary Carter and Joe Hamilton. He was kind of waving it around. I asked Johnny to let me see the gun. He gave it to me, and when I turned the chamber, a 22 caliber bullet fell out into my hand. Johnny told me to put it back in where it wouldn't fall out. I put it back and I gave it to him. I told him not to snap it at anybody. Then he got the pistol back. Johnny pointed the pistol at Mary Carter and he pulled the trigger. It snapped. Olivia was still sitting on his lap. I told Johnny again, not to snap the pistol at anybody. Johnny then put the pistol to Olivia's head and pulled the trigger. It snapped. Johnny said, I'll show you that it won't shoot. He held the pistol up, looked at it first, and then he put it to his head. I started toward the door, and then I heard the pistol go off. I turned around and I saw Johnny fall into the floor. I saw that he was shot, and I ran on stage and I told the people in the band about it. I stayed there until the officers arrived. Olivia told the police at the time, and this is not Willie May speaking anymore. Olivia told the police at the time that she didn't think the gun was loaded when Johnny started fooling with that little pistol again, mostly because he was screwing around with it earlier in her apartment. It wasn't loaded then. And don't forget, he was also giving bullets to people throughout the day. This account by Olivia Gibbs, Johnny's girlfriend, follows, also verbatim. I saw Johnny look at the gun and then he put it up to my head and he pulled the trigger and it snapped. I saw him look at the gun again, and then he put it up to his head and pulled the trigger and the gun fired. He then fell off the table and onto the floor. Everybody ran out of the room except Mary Carter, Willie Mae Thornton, and me. I thought he was just playing. And I picked up his head and then I saw the blood. I ran to the box office and I told Evelyn Johnson that Johnny had shot himself. Mary Carter's deposition also corroborated Thornton's account of the shooting. After I'd been in the dressing room for a few minutes, Johnny had a small pistol and he was pointing it at some of the people and he would pull the trigger and we could hear it click. After a while, he put the gun to Olivia's ear and he pulled the trigger and I could hear it click. Johnny then reared back in his chair and told us he was going to show us how it worked. He then put the gun to his right ear and pulled the trigger. I then heard a pop and Johnny fell over on the floor and I saw blood start running out of his head on the left side. Willie Mae and Olivia's accounts were quite mirrored, but it had circulated later that the very moment the trigger was pulled, Willie Mae noticed the expression on Johnny's face as he realized he was going to die. And she said, that kinky hair of his shot straight out. Both Otis and Evelyn Johnson later repeated that Ace's hair stood up on its end when the trigger was pulled. Though Neither of them were in the room at the moment. Evelyn Johnson recalls the incident as such. Johnny was looking tight and right that night. He had visited her while she was at the city auditorium in the ticket booth, which is quite unusual Unusual for her to be there, unusual for him to be so convivial, social with her. After they visited for a bit, Johnny went straight on set. During the break, Olivia Gibbs comes running out of the ticket booth screaming, Johnny has shot his brains out. Evelyn then ran backstage and saw a dead Johnny Ace with a smirk on his face. His hair straight up, a river of blood and brains starting to coagulate. In a small hole in his skull. Holy shit. What do you guys think?
0: So his gun had one bullet in it, it sounds like. The one that Mama Thornton put back in when he told her to. And his luck ran out right there.
2: Pulled the trigger how many times on other people?
1: Two times at least.
2: Yeah. Those poor girls. I mean, he Uh. could have totally killed either one of them
1: even if he didn't kill him, even if he didn't die, can you imagine how terrifying that would have been? Somebody point a live real gun at you knowing there's a bullet in it. You guys think it was suicide? I don't think he intentionally meant to
0: kill himself, but I think he was in a a place where he probably didn't care. Mm. And he was excited. He's probably getting a little bit uh, off on the thrill of it. He's probably had... Sounds like he was going through some a tough time, you know. And this was this was a little bit of excitement, shooting that gun.
1: Yeah. Seth, what do you think? I'm sorry, Casey,
0: go on. I don't think he intended to kill himself on the, in that spot, but I don't think, I don't think it would have come to him as a shock that that
2: was a very real possibility. I think he knew what he was doing. Seth, it's hard to it's hard to say for sure that he wanted to kill himself. Um, you know, despite some depression or struggles he may be going through at the time. He was still living his life exactly the way that he wanted to, traveling from town to town, playing music, had money, had people that would give him things, had resources, Uh, clearly was selfish and only concerned with what, what, what he considered a good time. So it's hard to say that he was ready to just walk away from all that. Um, I think more than likely he thought, I mean, it was just some bravado. It was just some trying to look cool. And uh, maybe he thought he took the other bullet out. I mean, who knows? Like Mm -hmm. it's – these accounts, yeah, they're pretty – excuse me. They're pretty consistent. But who knows what was going on in the kind of hustle bustle of a a backstage area where there's fans and people signing autographs and, you know. um, Yeah, I think – I agree with Casey that he. there was probably some of that devil-may-care attitude that you have when you're young and you could just give a shit and you don't think about your own mortality, but I just don't think he wanted to kill himself. I think it was likely an accident. You guys think it was Russian Roulette?
1: I feel I like you have so. to have
2: more than one willing player for Russian Roulette, yeah. not just someone pointing the gun at and you. And
0: isn't it the point of Russian Roulette to spin the revolver and then close it and not know? I think yeah. he knew which chamber that bullet was in. I think he probably just forgot which way it rotated. When he thought Actually, he had five empty ones, he had two. And he wasted them on the two girls, and he thought he had three left, and boom.
1: So, Casey's 100% correct. Russian roulette has rules, right? Mm-hmm. Uh you, yeah. you open the barrel, you spin it, there's one bullet, mm-hmm. and you put it back in, and then you fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's Russian roulette. We all know that. This wasn't Russian roulette in that type of way, right?
2: No, he was the only one firing. I mean, he he was in control as far as that goes. But, I mean, Russian roulette is a, a game that, you know, people play with each other. It's a dumb game.
1: Yeah. But it usually takes more than one willing participant to, to do it. It's also not the game where you just dry fire at the young girls that are hanging out on your lap backstage. Yeah. yeah. So back to the horror of the Christmas show in Houston here. Uh, A local DJ who had emceed the show claims that when he went on stage to inform the audience that the show was canceled and that Johnny was dead, that there was a little bit of a mini riot, people leaving in disgust, screaming, throwing things on stage. Evelyn Johnson claims otherwise, saying that the crowd went into instant mourning. But just imagine... The confusion, the sadness, the sounds coming from backstage, how horrifying it was. You had just sat through, you know, 10, 15 songs, I don't know, 45 minutes of music from somebody on Christmas Day. You've got some presents, maybe some new clothes. You're out there with your family, with your girl, you know, band goes off stage. You hear a loud bang backstage, come back out a couple minutes later. And the guy that was just on stage a few hours before whatever, getting the crowd warmed up says, yeah, it's canceled. Johnny's dead. They hear screams, police sirens, right? I mean, what a horrifying scene for everybody involved. hmm So there was a local PD detective on the scene. He describes it as such. Homicide detectives found Ace's body fully clothed in a gray suit, lying on a dressing room floor, cluttered with whiskey and vodka bottles. The justice of the peace at the scene determined the cause of death to be plain Russian roulette bullet wound in right temple self-inflicted entrance of the bullet about one inch above and two inches to the right of the right eye. No exit. Personal effects included the Christmas present Olivia had just given him, a three stone diamond ring, a Lucerne watch, a tie clip, a keychain with five keys, a lighter, and $23 in currency. He was carrying neither a wallet nor any credentials. Speaking after the fact, local officers who responded to the call to auditorium that night called it a logical result of a bad case of pistol itis, a fascination with guns and a need to show him off. Johnny Otis knew it to be true, later saying, Ace was obsessed with that shit. So was he being a jackass, menacingly irresponsible? Did he have a death wish? Did he not care? Was he cocksure? Was he young? Was he drunk? So he had a history of pointing the gun at other people's heads, but was it bravado when he did it to himself? There wasn't any account of him pointing the gun at his own head till that fatal shot was fired.